Let's look at our text this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 44, and we're going to look at quite a large section of text today, but um, I I hope that I've structured the text in such a way this morning that it will flow uh, very easily for us. Um, So we're going to look at really at three different questions this morning as we structure our text into three different portions. Okay, and I think these questions help us to really see the point of, of the text this morning. So the first question that we're going to ask is, who is like our God? I believe that the text is asking that question. Who is like our God? And uh, we see three things. And the first thing that we see that God alone is eternal. So when we're asking the question, uh, who is like our God? Uh, we're going to see that God sets himself up as a God that cannot be compared to any other. A God that cannot be compared to any other. And what makes him so unique? What makes our God so unique? If you had to answer that for someone, what makes your God so unique? Well, how would you answer? God answers the text in, in the text this morning, uh, I think at least in three ways. And the first way is that our God is eternal. This is what sets him apart. Just look at verse six with me. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, that is the Redeemer of Israel, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me, there is no God. So what did God just say? I am the first and I am the last. You've heard this before. What does that mean though? God was first and then all the other gods came along and God will just exist as all the other gods, you know, cease to be, he'll still remain. So that's what makes him the best God. Is that what's being said? Or is it that he was before all things and in him all things hold together and when all things fall apart, guess what remains? God alone. God is before and he is after He has always been. He will always be. This is the eternality of God. There was never a time when God was not. That's so hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? Because we're created beings. We had a beginning, didn't we? You were not, as some thought, you you just have a kind of an eternal soul. And there's a soul, you know, place where all the souls hang out. And then at one time, you just grab one of those souls that are floating around. You get one and you throw it in a body. And that body is born, but your soul has always been incorrect. Someone just made that up one day. That sounded good to them. But instead, you know that you were created at a particular time in history from a creative act of God eternal. God has always been. We have not always been. He said back in chapter 43, verse 10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before no God was formed, and nor shall there be any after me. So what he's doing and what he's saying over and over again is that these gods that you bow down to, you have to understand that I came before all of them, even though they are not any gods at all anyway. You have to understand that I was before all things. I was before all things The eternality of God is something that makes our God unique. He was the first and he will be the last. Just a couple of things to remind you of. In Romans 1, um, it says, For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So everyone's without excuse. What is one of the things that has been obvious from the beginning? In all creation, we can look and see there must be something that always has been in order to make something that is now. When we look and we see, where did all this stuff come from? Can science answer the question of where all this stuff came from? Left to itself, science cannot answer, where did this universe come from? It came from something that has always been. The creation came from something that is uncreated, right? God has always been. 1 Timothy 6, this is verses 13 through 16. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, of Christ Jesus, whose testimony before Pontius Pilate he made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. We have an eternal God. This is something that we have to remind ourselves of, is that first of all, because we're about to get into idolatry, anything that we set up as something that we worship is something that has been created. Because God alone is eternal. So anything that we set our heart's affections on to worship is something that has been created, right? So God is setting himself apart right from the start. As he says in the text, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Just understand, as we get started, let me put myself in my proper place. I have always been. Anything that is, is, is because I put it there. I alone am eternal. But just listen quickly before we move to the next point. Listen to all the things in the New Testament that talks about eternality. There is an eternal gospel. There is eternal life, eternal comfort, eternal dominion, eternal glory, eternal salvation, eternal inheritance, eternal covenant, eternal kingdom. But on the flip side, there is also something else, eternal judgment, eternal destruction, eternal chains, eternal fire. How can there be eternal things without someone to hold those eternal things together? You see, the fact that God is eternal means that he holds all things together always because he is eternal. So when God promises eternal life to you, you know that God never has an end, right? Something that is infinite has a beginning, but no end, right? Something that has no beginning and no end is what's actually eternal, no beginning and no end. But when it says eternal life, the, the phrasing in the New Testament's a little, it's, it's actually into the ages. Into the ages, we translate eternal life. But it's into the ages. That is, it will never end. Why? Because the eternal God is the one who has given it to you and sustains it. He has no end. But also for destruction and eternal change, there is no end to that either. He will always be to make sure that that's in force. So it's important that we understand that God is eternal, right? It's important that we understand that God is eternal. So God alone is eternal. That's good. That's what we see in verse 6. Look at verse 7. Not only is God alone eternal, God alone is omniscient. Omniscient is just a fancy way of, of saying all-knowing, okay? God is all-knowing. He has all knowledge. God knows all things. So look at verse 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. 
let him declare it and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Do you see that God is saying these things like, uh, so I created an ancient people. What does that mean? What, that's just hum- God created humanity and they've been around for a long time. So since you've been around for so long, humanity, and you think that you've arrived at a particular knowledge because you have developed so far, you tell me what's going to happen in the future. You tell me what is to come. And God says, you realize that no one can tell me what is to come. I alone have all knowledge. I set things in place. I have all knowledge. You know, this is actually a common thought in our world today. If you've not heard it, if no one has challenged you on it, it is coming. Someone is going to say something to you, and they're going to say something like, don't you realize that we have come so far, and yet you're clinging to an ancient religion that is so basic. It is so, we are so beyond that. A God like that, the God of the Old Testament in particular, God of the New Testament we can somewhat get with just as long as we hang on to the Gospels and the good stuff. So that's okay. Just model your life after the guy named Jesus, and that's, that's pretty good for the most part. But the God of the Old Testament, certainly not. The uh, moral qualifications that we find in the Old Testament, none of that is relevant anymore. We have moved beyond that. But yet you are still clinging to those ancient ideas? Get with it and move on. Grow up. Think like a modern human being. Stop living in the past. You don't need that old religion anymore. This is what is being said to us because around us, people are saying, we've evolved, okay? We've reached a point of knowledge where we don't need that religion stuff anymore. You know that the old people only used to use the supernatural terminology of God because they didn't understand how the world works. Don't you know that? They didn't understand the heavens and and they didn't understand how all these natural phenomena actually take place. So they would just say, oh, God did it. Oh, a spirit did it. But now we have all knowledge. Now we have science to tell us that, oh, that's not, you know, spirits. That's lightning, you know? Oh, that's not some weird thing. That's just the moon is covering the sun. You know, that's, this is not weird stuff. We can explain it all so we don't need all this spirituality anymore. That is what's being said to us. And God is looking humanity in the face as he was then saying, oh, really? Since you're such an ancient people and know so much, you tell me then what is to come and you can't. But God can, because he alone is all-knowing. He alone has all knowledge. That's a good thing about God, right? We can get excited about that. So God is eternal. Great news. God has all knowledge. Great news. Remember, he's setting himself up as unique, and he alone, number three in verse eight, is sovereign. So it's one thing to be eternal, it's one thing to have all knowledge and be eternal, but it's another thing entirely to be eternal, to have all knowledge, and to be sovereign over all things. That's something else entirely. So you can imagine a being who is eternal, has all knowledge, but doesn't have all power. What kind of being is that? But we have a God who not only has always been and will ever be, not only knows all things, but also has all power over all things. That is exciting. He has all power over all things. Look at verse eight. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. In your Bible, it probably has the word rock capitalized. Yes? In other words, indicating what? 
It's a name, right? I know no rock. I know not any. God is the rock. We sang a song this morning, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. What is, what is all this talk about a, God being a rock? I don't know that I want God to be a rock. Rocks don't think, right? No, it's a good thing that God's a rock because here's what it means. I'll take this from Isaiah 26.4. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Good, but if we only think rock, we think, okay, he's an ever, I mean, you can hold a rock in your hand, he, but that rock will be forever, so trust in it. He's an everlasting rock. That rock never ends. Trust in him. That doesn't really help me much. I don't really want a rock. I want a God. But what does he mean by rock? What does rock mean? Uh, Deuteronomy 32 helps us. Deuteronomy 32, 37 through 39. Then he will say, where are the gods, the rock in which they take refuge? So the gods are associated with a rock in which you take refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices, drank the wine of their offerings, let them rise up and they help you. Let them be your protection. So uh, what's being associated with this idea of rock is that a rock is a help, it is a protection and it is a shelter. So if you can imagine yourself being in the Middle East, in the wilderness, there's going to be lots of rocks and, and uh, large rocks. We're talking about mountainside rocks, okay? We're talking about big rocks, not little rocks. We're talking about giant, massive rocks that we call mountains and cliffs. And we get breaks in those, right? They separate, and you get a, a break, and they're so big, you can actually put yourself in there. And you can hide yourself in the cleft of a rock. And you can find protection there from the elements or from danger or from animal or whatever it may be. You can hide yourself, tuck yourself away in the rock for protection. Now, if you want protection, everlasting protection, go to God, the rock. I know not any like him. He can deliver and protect from all circumstances, meaning what? He has all power over all things and he can certainly protect you forever. Hide yourself in him. There is no one like him. There is no one who can protect you and deliver you but God alone. He is an everlasting rock. Flee to him for protection. If any flee to God for refuge, guess what? They have protection for how long? For all eternity. Because he is an eternal God. He is a good God. He is our God. God is your protection and because God is your, your protection, who can harm you? What is there to harm you if God is your protection? Answer that. What God is there who can harm you? What element can harm you? What person can harm you? What issue can be detrimental to you if God is the one protecting you? He has power over all things. He can protect you against everything. This is good news for us because he is our God and he protects us. But if God is your enemy, there is no one who can protect you from him. So this is what our God is like. He is eternal, he is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful. This is a good God. He is our God, and we rejoice in who he is. Now, here's the big problem. We, like Israel, often find ourselves forgetting the greatness of our God and substituting him for something else. Because you think, if that's who God is, why would I ever want a replacement? 
Why would I ever want to substitute for that greatness? And yet, we do it. We do it. We put a substitute in the place of Almighty God. What might that look like? What did it look like for them? So let's look at our next question. Who is our God? The emphasis is on who. Who is our God? Is your God the God we just described? Or is he something else? Let's look at what the text says, verses 9 through 13. Who is like our God? First question we're going to ask, three questions. What does he look like? Whenever you're describing, hey, I have a God. Really? What's he like? What's he look like? What does your God look like? What is he like? How would you describe your God? Well, let's first look how they were describing their gods, who they were, what they did. Look at the text with me. Look at verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. Yes, by the way, it did jump into that kind of out of nowhere. We have this great description of God, and then it jumps into all who fashion idols are nothing. That's intentionally there. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they might be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, and they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a tool, and he works it over the coals, and he fashions it with hammers, and he works it with his strong arm. But then he becomes hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man and with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. What's being described here are, first of all, kind of the character of Uh, the people who are making idols, and then it goes into detail about what that actually looks like and the fact that they're only human. We ask a question, what does he look like? Well, in this circumstance, verse 13, he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. So you create this God And the best you can do is a God that looks like everybody else. That's the best you got. You can either make it look like an animal, right, which they did, or a person, or something else that you've seen. That's the best you've got. Have you ever heard, by the way, the concept, just food for thought here, that actually we cannot ever come up with something brand new? And, of course, you think, well, yes, I can. I can think of, you know, like a polka-dotted, you know, unicorn that flies. That doesn't exist, and I came up with that. Yeah, but polka-dots exist. Unicorns exist, or horns exist. Horses exist. I don't know. Do unicorns exist? But you get the idea is that we take pieces and elements of things that are real, and all the best we can do is jam them together. That's all we got. That's the best we have. All we can do is look around at God's creation and try to manipulate it to create something. That's that's it. That's all we have. We, We can't do something entirely brand new. We can't make something out of nothing, can we? 
but there is one who can and who did. God alone does that. But then we see the horror and the, such a sad situation of a man Two men, actually. One, we have the ironsmith, and then we have the carpenter. The ironsmith, he's making a, a, a metal image, right? And then the carpenter is making a wooden image. But he's saying both of them, don't you see that, first of all, they're just men because they work and they're making this God, and guess what? Oh, they get tired. You spend all your energy making this God, and it wears you out because you're just a man. And then after you make the image, guess what you made it look like? A man. To put in a house... All this stuff, God is saying, I, I created all of that. I made all of this, and you, you're going to bow down and worship that? I made that. I put that there. You're going to substitute me, almighty, eternal, sovereign God, for that? How could you do that? Leviticus 26.1, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or a pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land or bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, think about that. You cannot make any representation of who I am. Don't even try. Because the representation that you even try to make of me is going to fall short. Do you remember in the situation with the golden calf in Israel, you realize in that situation, they were actually attempting to honor the God that delivered them by making, though, a golden calf. They set up an idol because they wanted something tangible, something visible, something that they could say, there is our God. Now, we've been wondering where this guy was, you know. Uh, we saw signs and, you know, we saw evidence of him, but that, where is he? I want to touch him. I want to see him. I want to come and I want to I bow down to him. Where is he at? We don't have anything. Aaron, make us something up. Okay, give me all the gold you got. Okay, and out comes this, you know, this calf thing. Well, great, that must be what God looks like. Don't set up anything in my image or in the image of anything else. You can't represent me with there. I don't live on earth. I don't dwell in a house. God dwells eternally in the heavens. God is not a man. He is God. God is not a man. He is something separate. He is something other. He is something completely different. And this is really what the word holy means. Entirely separate. Separated. He is holy. There is none like him. Truly, there is none like him. Why would we want a God that resembles humanity anyway? You ever, I mean, really? Why would you want that? Because I understand that we have a room full of people here who think that I don't do that, though. I don't cut down trees. I don't work metal with coal. I don't beat it, you know, with, I don't know, maybe some of you do that. That'd be interesting. That actually sounds, I'd like to make things out of metal. We can talk later if you actually do that. I'd like to learn how to do that. Yeah. But anyway, are you making little gods to then bow down to? Probably not. Probably not. But you know that this was a common practice in Isaiah's day that they literally were doing this. So you might say, but this is not for me. And so the text, although very interesting, doesn't really have much weight on me this morning because don't worry, I'm not making idols. So can we move on to something that actually affects me? Why would I create a God that resembles me? Let's just think about that for a second. A human craftsman takes only the things he knows and he manipulates it into something that he likes right? 
would a craftsman make something that then in turn despises him? Because uh, he's saying, okay, I'm going to make an idol today. I'm going to work hard. It's going to wear me out. But I've set my mind to make an idol today. So I cut down my tree and I'm going to make an idol. I'm going to set it up. But I'm going I'm to imbue this idol with characteristics, qualities, traits. And one of the things about this God that I made is that he hates me. He despises everything about me. But he is my God, so I guess I'll just do what he wants. Why would you do that? That sounds insane. But no, actually what we do is we create a God that loves us. He loves everything about you. He likes who you are. He likes what you do. He likes how you talk. He likes how you dress. He likes all your thoughts, all your actions. Because our temptation is to create a God that likes us just the way we are. Isn't that true? We all have this desire inside of us to create a God that looks just like ourselves. He looks just like us. It's amazing. In fact, we think, yeah, he talks like me, uses the same language. God even speaks English. Did you know that? God speaks English. Uh, he's white, for, definitely. Uh, he's definitely American. Uh, He's certainly Republican. He, um, he, what else? What, what else? He likes, he likes um, you know, orchestral music, certainly, because I do. So I know that God likes that the best. Um, the piano is the most reverent instrument to the Lord. He doesn't like drums because I don't like drums. Um, uh, what else about God? You know, we, we go on about who God is because you want to create a God that looks just like you. You want to create a God that looks just like you rather than the God that truly is. God is not like you. He is like God. God is not a man. He is God. Let's not try to change the image and character of God into something that he is not. Because to put anything in place of God is a poor substitute for who he truly is. Do you agree with that? So, what does he look like? Well, if your God looks a lot like you, it's not God. Number two, what does he do? So we get an idea of what he looks like. What does he do? What does this God do all day? What, is, what, what does he like to do? What are his likes and dislikes, you know? What does what this work? What does, he, what does he do? So let's look at that next. Look at verses 14 through 17. So back to the craftsman. He cuts down cedars. He chooses a cypress or an oak, good-looking trees. Let's it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar in the, in the rain and he nourishes it. And then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire. He bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol. He falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, and over half of it he eats meat, and he roasts it, and he's satisfied. He also warms himself, and he says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And with the rest of it, he makes it into a god, his idol. He falls down to it. He worships it. He prays to it and says, Very important, very important what he wants from this god. Look at it. Deliver me. 
for you are my God. Deliver me. This is what we all want out of the God of our own making, that we might be delivered. But the question is, delivered from what? What is it that if I were to ask you this morning, and I'm promising one of these days we're going to do one of these real surveys rather than hypothetical, but if you walked in and I were to ask you, what is the one thing that you want to be delivered from this morning? We would get a plethora of answers, would we not? Oh, I got some good things, you know. Uh, financial stress would be probably on top of the list, right? Deliver me from my financial distress. Whatever is weighing heavy on you is what you would say. Deliver me from this relational struggle that I'm going through. Deliver me from being so tired and overworked. Deliver me from the problem that I have. Deliver me from this or from that. You just think of all these things that you want to be delivered from. And what we do then is we fashion a God of our own making and say, you are my God, deliver me from these things. Because that's what you do. That's why I made you. I made you to deliver me from all of my problems. And there we find a very interesting part of idolatry, which is when we set something up in the place of God, we do it for a purpose that that thing might deliver us from our problems. We set it up that that, might, that thing might deliver us. Deliver me! At their time, most likely, uh, from enemies around them, from the hurts or the pains of whatever it may be. But you know what? They were real people too. They had real world problems just like me and you. They had financial problems. They had relational issues. They had work that they had to do just like we do. They got tired just like many of you are this morning. They were overworked, stressed, anxious. They wanted to be delivered from all of it. And where is God? This great eternal God that he says he is, why is he not helping me? Why is he not my help? You ever been in that situation where you wondered, this great God that I hear so much about, that even I sing about, we, everybody at church talks about this God, I read about him in the Bible, I'm going through all this pain and hurt, where is, where is this God to deliver me? Where is my deliverance? And so, unfortunately, we set something up in our life that will bring us deliverance from whatever ails us, and the thing that we put there becomes an idol that we fall down to. So you might think, well, to have a better life, I simply need to make more money. And so you work, and you work, and you work, and you work. At all costs, I'm going to work. Because working and financial security is the thing that's going to deliver you, you think. You serve it. You bow down to it. Whatever it takes, I'm going to work and I'm going to make money. This is my God. If a person were completely satisfied, protected, cared for, then why would they feel a need to create anything new to give them help? Because why? They don't need any help. Right? If you were perfectly cared for, Everything in your life was perfect. You had everything you've ever wanted. All your relationships are perfect. Or if you're the kind of person that doesn't want relationships, everybody leaves you alone. Whatever it is, I have the perfect life. Then you would need no God. And unfortunately, 
We all feel the pains of what it is to be human and live in a fallen world. And so none of us has a perfect life. And as it happens, we don't retreat to God for refuge, to the rock who protects us, but we create something in its place that gives us temporary relief from what we think is going to be our help, right? Think about how how many things in a day can you create to give you deliverance? A lot of people retreat to food. Listen, I've had a terrible day. I feel horrible, miserable, and so I'm going to eat whatever, you better believe, I'm going to eat whatever I want right now, and it's going to make me feel better for the moment because I need to be delivered from how I feel. What are the other things that you do to be delivered from the way that you feel Some of these things are momentary. Some of these things remain permanent. Some of these things last your lifetime. You've created a pattern of creating things in your life that will deliver you from whatever is giving you grievance in your heart. So this is why the craftsman created the idol. Why? Because he needs something to save him. Save him from what? Whatever it is. And he says to it, deliver me. Deliver me. From what does your God deliver you? What does God promise to deliver you from? If we're thinking about the true God, the eternal God, the all-powerful, all-knowing God, what is it that he has promised to deliver you from? Think about it hard. Because if you have falsely believed that God promised to deliver you from whatever ails you, you're going to seek out another God because he failed. God never promised to deliver you from these things, but he has promised to deliver you from something, and it's the best thing. It's actually the one thing that we most need to be delivered from, and he delivered us from it, from our true enemy. God has protected us for all eternity. He's done it. He's sealed it. We are protected for eternity. It's all already yours. What is that thing that he delivers us from? A great reference here that makes it very clear is 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For this is Paul writing to a church in Thessalonica, okay? He's writing to a church and he's saying, uh, there is a report concerning you, the church, of the kind of reception that we had among you and how upon hearing the gospel, you turned from Uh, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from, here it is, here's the thing that we're delivered from, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We have been delivered from the wrath that is to come for sin. We have been delivered. And what he promised to deliver, he has certainly done it, and he will do it. Now, we live in a world, though, where people are looking for extra things from God. Now, may God deliver you from these... God is a good God, you know that? He loves you. He loves all his children, and he wants you, most of all, to be like him. Not to be happy and satisfied, unless it is happy and satisfied in him alone. So if he finds you happy and satisfied in your stuff, who you are, your life, we pray that God would interject himself into our life, 
to rid me of those things that I have trusted in, to let me trust in him alone. That's what we want. That's hard, isn't it? But this is what we want from our God. We want to trust in him alone, don't we? We want to see God as the rock, don't we? We want him to see the one that we hide ourselves in him, and when we are hid in him, nothing, nothing can bother us. Nothing can get to us. No enemy can triumph over me if God is protecting me. Any enemy, even the enemy of death, it cannot harm you. God is your protector, eternally, perfectly. God is your protector. How is it that we can miss this big picture? How, how do you miss that? How do you look at your life and say, I want to be delivered from the physical pains of whatever happened to me. I was working yesterday and my back hurts. And, or my back has been hurting me for 15 years and I'm done with it. Or I've been having this issue over here. I've been struggling. I have to live every week paycheck to paycheck and I don't have what I've done with the struggle. That's how we miss the big picture because we get consumed with this stuff of day-to-day life. You know, uh, I, I, if I, I, I've talked to many of you. Most of you tell me that you're exhausted. That's not just you, by the way. I've had lots of conversations. You're always thinking of me. No, I've talked to pretty much everybody and everybody is telling me I'm exhausted. Exhausted. From what? From life. Working, doing this, doing that. Got to keep the house up. Got to keep, I'm just, I'm exhausted from all that there is, the busyness of life. And I just, and what that leads you to is maybe you come to gather with God's people and you just, I'm so beat, I'm ready to, you know, if this goes on much longer, I don't know that I'm going to make it. Because I have nothing left. Nothing left. This is how we miss the big picture. We can weary ourselves with the day-to-day routines of life and miss our heart's service to God. What is left to give to God? You know, giving our first and best to the Lord is a great biblical principle. Do you know that also comes to your time? Comes to your energy? your thoughts. If something has to give and you only have a year left on this planet, are you going to work yourself to death? Or what would you do? What would you change? Would you devote yourself more to your God? You don't know how many days you have left. You need to devote yourself to God today. Give your life to Him. Americans, all of us, are too busy. We're too busy We don't need all this busyness. It's distracting us from godliness. It's distracting us from godliness. Too much work, too much busyness. Our God is worth more than that. He deserves and he demands more than that from us. We should give that to him, don't you think? So where did this God come from? Verses 18 through 20. They know not, nor do they discern. This is going back talking to the craftsmen. They don't know. They don't discern. He, God, has shut their eyes so they can't see 
and their hearts so that they can't understand. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, this is amazing. Half of it I burned in the fire, and I baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat, and I've eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? You see, what he's saying is they're not actually thinking that through. They can't. God has blinded their minds that they can't see it and their hearts that they don't understand what they're even doing. Actually, have you felt that in your own life and you say, how did I ever let it get to this point? Have you ever said that? How did I ever let it get there? Sin blinds us. Sin hurts us. Sin is deceptive. And you'll say, I don't know how I even, I don't know. I don't know how I got there. Now, that's for those who have the Spirit of God in them. What of those who don't even have the Spirit of God in them? They never come to an understanding. They never wake up and say, how did I let it get to that point? Unless God intervenes and by his grace saves them, awakens their heart and their mind to understand and see him. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that day for you when you were in darkness and God illumined your mind to see for the first time your sinfulness? This is not a work that he's done with in your life. He continues to awake us to our sin. Then we might see what we're doing. So shall I fall down and bow to this block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand, this idol I've made? He can't do it. If you look over at Romans 1, we're not going to go there in detail, but if you look over at Romans 1, you're going to notice kind of a description of how these things work themselves out in the world. God says they are without excuse because they knew God but they didn't give thanks to him as God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the image of God for the image of his creation. And then it says further on that God gives those people over to a debased mind. Who gives them over? God gives them over to this mind to do the things that should not be done. There is a giving over into sin. Several times it talks about God giving them over. And this is the same thing that we find here in Isaiah 44. That a deluded heart creates false gods. A deluded heart creates false gods. If not, then why are we making them? I'm going to bring things to a close here pretty quick because we have, uh, we've covered a lot this morning. There are a couple of points here I want to I make. First is this. We are in continual need of God to open our eyes and our ears because we will be tempted to create gods for our own purposes and for our own pleasures and for our own pride. We will create gods to serve and feed our sin. That's what we like to do. We create gods to serve and feed our sin. Paul talks about idolatry in uh, Colossians 3, verse 5. That's a good reference if you're taking notes. Colossians 3, verse 5, and the surrounding verses. Look at that in, in context of what he's saying. But he says, Put to death what is earthly in you, 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. How is that idolatry? What is, what is covetousness? What is it to covet? To desire to have more than what you are due is actually what that word means. To desire to have more than what is due to you is to covet. I want that thing, but that's not yours. You don't get that. That's not, but I want it anyway. I want what's not mine. I want these things. That's to covet. How is that idolatry? Because discontentment and dissatisfaction in your heart is the root of idolatry. You don't have something and you want it, and so you set it up as a God before you and you serve it. There's something that you want so bad, it controls your life. You are bowing down to an idol. So just think with me this morning. What is it that is controlling your life? What do you live for? What do you work for? What do you wake up in the morning serving? Yourself? Your family? Money? Your health? Your job? Your reputation? I don't know what it is, but we all are tempted, listen, tempted, to feed our sin and to serve something that is not God Almighty. We'll retain the rest of this for next week, but I do want to uh, end with uh, a passage from Jeremiah. You have that, I believe, Chris. Do you mind putting that passage from Jeremiah up on the screen? Everybody turn with me. We're just going to end right here. Turn with me over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7. I do have it on the screen as well, but I'd like to look at it. And uh, just some closing thoughts here. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah is writing just a little bit after Isaiah. So the historical circumstances that we've understood are very similar to the historical circumstances in Jeremiah's day. They're actually just much closer to the events of the Babylonian captivity. Okay, and so he's talking to Judah, the people of God, and he says to them, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. That den of robbers, we're familiar with that, right? Jesus uh, looks at uh, the temple and all that's happening there and says, this has become a house of robbers. What he was saying to them, really, is that there's nothing but idol worship happening here. You're not serving the true and living God through all these things, but you have set up other gods in its place. But go back to the previous slide there, if you would. Here's what was happening in the people's hearts. This is what's happening in the people's hearts. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely? By the way, remember how Jesus identified all these things. It's not actually the committing the act. Say, well, I'm not committing adultery. Well, if you lust after someone in your heart, that's Jesus called that, that adultery. And you make offerings to Baal, serving other gods. 
And then you come and you stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. What are these people doing? They're bowing down to other gods to deliver them from earthly stuff while they come and they give God worship, saying, but God has delivered us. We love God. He delivered us. And we're here and we sing and we clap and we rejoice and we, God is great. And then we walk out the doors with a heart that is turned toward idols and sin. And God says, I have seen it all. I have seen it all. There is a real temptation for us. And I hope I have made that point clear this morning because we think idols, I don't make little idols. I don't worship them. I don't serve them. But an idol is a thing that you set up in your heart before God that you give your allegiance to in your heart and you bow down before it and you serve it. That's what an idol is. As Paul called covetousness, idolatry, it is because you have unsatisfied desires in your heart and you try to satisfy them with things of the earth. We need to be very careful that we are not attempting to satisfy ourselves with anything other than God. So we look around and we say, but God wants me to make money, right? God wants you to be prudent. God wants you to take care of your family. God wants you to do, there's no doubt about that, but you do not serve it. If something has to give allegiance to God or allegiance to money, what has to give? Allegiance to money. If something has to give allegiance to fill in the blank, If something has to give that is pulling my heart away from allegiance to God and serving him with everything that I have, what has to go? The other thing that is pulling my heart and my mind away from serving the true and living God. Does that make sense? Because that is the heart of the issue this morning. Yes, for them it worked out in making little idols and bowing down to them and serving, but you realize it was a heart problem. It was a heart problem that had an outworking. Ours is the same. It's just that the outworking looks a little different for us, but certainly it is still idolatry in our lives. There is a warning here. Do you hear it? Here is the true God. Here is the abominations that you can set up before God. Think of how ridiculous it sounds to make something that serves your own pleasures and say, you are my God, deliver me. That thing is not eternal. That thing is not all-knowing. That thing is not all-powerful. Why do you serve it? Serve God and Him alone. There is no one like our God. Give Him everything you have. Bow down before Him in your heart. This is what God calls us to. We'll finish out the rest of this text next week. Okay, let's pray together.